Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is another one of these that is generously funded by UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center Intellectual Humility Grant. Uh, Sari and I have been participating in this. This is our fifth episode, sort of focused around this topic. Sari, it has been a while since 
we started these. You've been on mic kind of sporadically on some episodes. Why don't you just briefly reintroduce yourself and then we'll get into uh, our episode today with Dr. Steve Sandage. Yes, it's fun. We're right at the end of our this co-leading this this grant project. It was really fun to be awarded and be part of this really special group. And we're actually going to go to an event next month together to meet some of these people, which is really cool. We're going to go to Berkeley, get infected by leftists. It's going to be, you know, uh, but who, and who doesn't love to be awarded? Let's just be honest. I mean, I'll take an award. Just yes. give me one. It's going to feel very elitist. It'll be great. Yeah. I just want to say a couple of things because every time you brought me on, like we mentioned, we've mentioned that I worked at Blueprint and last year we spent some time promoting the fact that I made a, my own short film and a lot of your listeners were supportive of that. Yeah. So I just want to say that the short film is in post-production. I'm raising a little more money to finish it because we're in the VFX process. So I just didn't want people to think that it's just like I dropped the ball or anything. Uh, it's still in process and these things just take time. In addition to that, I've amicably left Blueprint 1543 and started my own company with someone else who your listeners know well, uh, Kristen Tideman. The two of us are business partners and we're building websites and doing other strategic kind of communications projects for a lot of people who are academics or non nonprofit leaders, kind of big idea people is what I like to say, podcasters like yourself, Dan. So yeah, Tidyco is the the new thing and I'm still doing my filmmaking. So that's the update. Thanks for listening. I do think Tidyco is an all-time name for your guys' company, Tideman Concepcion. Tideman Fantastic. Concepcion. This is, it's, a, it's a little example of the kind of stuff you guys can do when you put your minds together. Yeah, you know? yeah. First it works project. out too because Kristen Tideman is more tidy than me. If it, <laughs> I'm more the creative. <laughs> yeah, you're the co. I'm the co. <laughs> well, yeah. it's great to have you back, Sari, and it's great to have you back, Steve. Last episode we did together, I think was last summer, it was called, What Does a Healthy Spiritual Leader Even Look Like? We did talk about healthy spiritual leadership. We also talked about kind of attachment, gender, humility, and humility is, of course, where we're going to pick up today because it is a part of this project. But today I want to more focus on cultural humility, because the reality is that the modern world we live in, which I always reference in the repeated intro, which you haven't heard here today, Steve, but listeners hear it every time they listen, Christianity and the modern world. And the modern world is in fact full of cultural diversity. Now, all my trained therapists, medical care workers, teachers, I'm, I'm sure 10 other industries people could name are all going to be familiar with the importance of cultural humility, because it is a part of our training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, those contexts in which this stuff matters. But I actually think that the need for that training points to something really interesting, just this interesting feature of our modern world, namely that that actual plurality of, of culture. I think there are theological consequences for this. I think there are some interesting lenses through which to look at evangelicalism, which is what Sari and I were raised with and, and so many of our listeners. So that's kind of where we're going in general. And we're glad Fantastic. to have you back. Yeah, great to be back with both of you. I'm going to start with a for dummies question, but that I think will help give us some language and whatnot around which to kind of form this conversation. Steve, what is a culture? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, easy, we could, easy we could, right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could actually um, debate that if we had a whole host of people. But I think I think sometimes people 
think of culture as kind of these different artifacts or symbols, right, or or certain procedures, types of food. Uh, but really what gets interesting, I think, is subjective culture, which is a bit deeper than that and more holistic. It's embodied. It's kind of our sense of ways of being in the world at, at various kinds of levels. So sometimes that's a little harder for people to articulate because they're it's often internalized in ways of, of eating, ways of talking with people, ways of of evaluating one's life and one's values. And, and so really, I think that's where some good action is around the issues that you raise, because we can have very different subjective experiences of culture rooted in different worldviews around a variety of things. And it does become really important to have some capacities for navigating that with folks. Yeah, I mean, we obviously think of ethnicity, we think of national origin, we think of language, maybe food, like you mentioned. Yeah. But there are all kinds of cultures. Like, I often think that white evangelical Protestantism is a culture, if maybe a subculture, sure. but it is, sure. it is like you're saying, it's a way of being in the world. It is yeah. holistic. I mean, there is this, I don't know if you've seen the articles about this phenomenon but evangelical as a label has gotten so popular in, you know, let's call it one half of American culture that there are mm -hmm. people who identify as evangelical Muslims, mm -hmm. you know, people who are like absolutely not Christian, these other yeah. subgroups that actually they go, but they, you know, maybe for instance, I'll, I'm going to assume they consume Fox news they feel they're on that side of culture war issues and they go, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an evangelical as well, even though mm -hmm. that now, now that term then has completely jumped the shark from what right. it originally right. meant, all these theological right. and sort of church polity distinctives uh, as opposed right. to other Christians. And now it means something else, but isn't that a good example of the way that culture actually works? It doesn't stick to, the terminology that someone sets for it, it goes yeah. where people go. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. That's a great example that culture is a fluid dynamic. It changes. It gets internalized and understood differently by different people, which is also what can make it kind of dangerous for me to make quick judgments about what someone's culture is or what it means to them. Uh, it does take a lot more patience and process to really um, try to understand what uh, a particular cultural identification or, or set of perspectives means to a particular person. Can I ask you both, who are both people connected to the world of psychology, religion and spirituality as part of cultural competence, is that a big part of it or something that's acknowledged by therapists or that you could expect them to think of religion and spiritual background as part of cultural competence? I would say that actually there is some data that suggests religion and spirituality are areas of multiculturalism that often get the least coverage in trainings of counselors and clinicians. Yeah. There was one survey um, that was kind of ironic too, where therapists indicated they were most competent in that area despite having the least amount of training in it, which is... <laughs> Kind of interesting oh, wow. around the cultural humility topic. So um, yeah, that kind of tracks actually, <laughs> with popular discourse around religion. Uh, that yeah. you know, you think about your Sam Harris's of the world. A lot yeah. of confidence, perhaps yeah. quite little competency. 
Not to right. name specific names. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So I think that actually it, it often isn't an area that therapists or counselors get get a lot of training on, especially in terms of spiritual and religious diversity. Probably the listeners of your podcast, Dan, like a lot of people will relate with like that sort of fear of like, you won't understand where I'm coming from. It, like, I know, I know I need a therapist. I need this therapist to mm-hmm. understand this part of my background. Yeah. I mean, I just finished, you know, a doctoral education. I still have to get hours before I can get licensed, but uh, fully licensed rather. But I will say that it was, it's certainly, it is in the text of the kind of popular training stuff that current trainees are getting, at least in a doctoral program. You got to imagine that a master's program is going to have less than half the amount because there are some very basics of therapy that have to get covered in any graduate program. And then you've Mm -hmm. got more room uh, in a doctor, you got a couple more years of school, for instance, so mm-hmm. you can cover more. But what I've also found with therapy with uh, therapy clients is, I mean, the importance is massive. Um, mm-hmm. When, especially, you know, a lot of people will come see me to work on religious issues. That's kind of obviously what I what I am most competent to work with, and they often feel like they save so much time. Mm-hmm. as opposed to working with just, you know, let's just say a local therapist who's in their insurance network, um, right. just kind of your statistically mm-hmm. average therapist that they might find. And, right. you know, I, I feel like I've saved many of my clients a full session or more of just like, mm-hmm. you don't have to explain all this stuff to me. Like I will sometimes go, let me throw out a few bullet points. You tell me how close I am. And then they, mm-hmm. you could just like see it on their face. And yep. that sounds like I'm kind of patting myself on the back. And I, I'm sure that I am a little bit. But the reason that I share that is not to pat myself on the back. It's because it just showcases for me that that goes such a way so far towards building rapport with a client quickly, which is mm-hmm. one of the first jobs of a therapist. When you have a new client, they have to feel like they can trust you. Like they, like they're listening, like you're listening to them. Like you see where they're coming from and you're joining them on the journey. That's mm-hmm. tricky. It's tricky to do that early on and being able to have a cultural shorthand to have competency in a cultural area is priceless when you can, yeah. when you've got it basically. Yeah. There's actually been research showing that a majority of clients would like to discuss spiritual and religious issues in therapy. If they could be confident that their therapist would be um, accepting of where they're coming from. Now, of course there's clients who have no interest in that area at all and it's important that therapists are respectful of that too, but it is it is a gap still, I think, in general. Yeah, I have a therapist in my life who texts me occasionally. Their background is not Christian at all. It's Jewish. And when they have clients, because of our work with like soyourdeconstructing.com and stuff, she'll send me a text and say, I have yeah. a client who's dealing with this issue. She kind of asks for more like theological background. Are there other verses that I could pull out of my hat? <laughs> you know, and acting as a little uh, casual consultant for for that person. <laughs> Do you ever uh, dissuade that person from uh, trading verses uh, with their clients? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. No, I handle it with care. I handle it. With well, them. bless their heart. They haven't spent years and years being uh, completely downtrodden and feeling like a failure for the 500 times that simply sharing a different Bible verse with a friend did not convince them of your perspective. We're all seasoned in that, in that regard. I was going to say, if the question became what, you know, what percentage of therapists have had the experience of say 
sitting with a spiritually diverse group of colleagues and unpacking reflectively kind of how spirituality or religion have impacted their development for better or worse or mixed and how that impacts kind of how they think about those issues in their work. I would venture a guess that that's not very common, you know. So actually, even if it's covered somewhat in some graduate courses or people are doing some reading, I still think that there can be, a, you know, another phase of actually moving to some self-awareness of how I've been impacted and some, you know, it can be really nice to be in a group of folks from different backgrounds and traditions, maybe some who are practicing, some who are not, have left, and, and to be able to be in a mix of folks and process is really probably the ideal of um, training on those issues from my point of view. There's kind of an obvious what happens if you mess up on, on cultural competence or cultural humility, but I, I want to kind of motivate that a bit more, Steve. So obviously you could have a client who goes, this, this guy, this gal does not get me at all. Right. I, honestly, my first experience with a therapist when I was 23 or so, I, so I told him I was struggling with like end times related anxiety and panic attacks. So I kind of explained the situation. I maybe talked about it for 15 minutes or something. And this, this individual did not grow up in the same world I did, obviously, because I don't know if this is exactly how he phrased it, but my memory of how he phrased his question was, so do you actually believe this stuff? And, you know, that might not be verbatim, but that was, that's the impression I got. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, no. And I'm, I'm actually kind of telling you that I don't think the guy from Florida from the Dateline exclusive I saw is actually the Antichrist. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I don't believe that. But what I'm telling you is that I struggle with not believing that given my background and the way that this stuff impacts me in, in anxiety and in other ways. And I was out of there. I didn't see that guy again. Yeah. In fact, he had to like hound me to pay him for the one session, but that's more about my personality <laughs> than it is about his care that he gave me. But like, then I, you know, I, I did end up finding a therapist again years later. And I don't think that for me, that meaningfully kept me from it, but it definitely left a bad, left a bad taste in my mouth. And you can just imagine someone for whom they are less inclined to seek therapy in the future than I was and mm -hmm. how that might affect them. So that's like a basic example, but Steve, I'd love to hear more from you about what are the stakes here? Uh, not just for therapists, but for people, like if we, if we lack a cultural humility, if we sort of assume that our culture's got it all, what are we possibly committing by doing that? The good news goes like this from my perspective about therapy, but in other kinds of relationships often is, I mean, there's a lot of research now showing with therapy that ruptures in therapy are common at various levels. There can be a severe rupture, feeling insulted by a therapist, and those are really tough. But, but actually, it's pretty common to have some level of misses where I just don't feel quite understood or the therapist, you know, I'm a client and the therapist's attitude about something leaks in a little bit. And, and really, one of the great findings from the cultural humility research is that uh, therapists who are higher in cultural humility are more adept at repairing those ruptures. It's not as though they don't have ruptures. And I don't think that's a, a healthy ideal in our relationships in general. 
The question is, am I attuned to the dynamics of a relationship? And am I humble enough to be non, uh, non-defensive or not too defensive when I sense, oh, I think I was off there? And therapists, as well as I think this is a good model for relationships in general, I do mostly couples therapy, you know, so I'm often working with couples on this stuff, is to circle back, to, to check back in, to give a chance to process that. And and in general in therapy, that tends to go pretty well. I think it's encouraging that um, clients are often willing to repair those things. What isn't work so well is if the therapist isn't even tuned into it or assumes that this is the client's neurosis and I just need to kind of look down on them, um, which can be a subtle dynamic. And I've, I've had this stuff happen in my own work many, many times. And I actually, you know, when a client initiates something about, hey, I felt misunderstood about this, I think that's really a sign of um, potentially a therapeutic situation. Oh, yeah. It's it's helpful if a client feels invested enough or or assertive enough or, or if they trust the therapist enough. Could be any of those scenarios, right? Say, I, I felt misunderstood there. I'd like to go back over that. When I'm a therapist, I'm trained and now I'm working with clients. I am very attuned to whether my client and I are in sync with each other. If we are kind of getting along, if it seems like they are feeling supported, understood, because if they're not like nothing, you know, everything is going to be sort of devalued quite a bit. And they're basically going to be fighting against that. And and it's, it goes against, you know, basically their treatment and their improvement. So I'm really attuned to that because it is a fundamental part of the job. It's sort of like if you were a psychiatrist or a PCP and you are dispensing medication to your patients, but like half of them aren't taking it, you know, it's (laughs) like, well, that, then you really got to start what's going on here such that my patients aren't taking the medicine that we're agreeing upon. Right. Right. It's that level of seriousness to have that kind of a rupture. But ordinary people are not sort of as focused on an issue like that in their day to day life because they're not doing therapy. Right. And so I guess the first the first part of kind of landing this in an evangelicalism topic is like maybe just starting there with kind of what do you think the average person's experience is with something like cultural humility if it is not part of their job to be culturally humble? Like, where does it come in in a regular person's life, a, a civilian, if you will? Yeah, great question. Well, I guess I would come at it this way. I mean, I'm I'm a person of privilege, really, in, in uh, almost every area. So as a white, straight, cisgender male, I um, I can probably get away with operating without cultural humility just because of privilege. But I think that um, for many people from from non-dominant groups, marginalized groups, you know, women, there's really a need in an ongoing way often to tune in to the effect of things. And sometimes that's just out of anxiety and oppression, but there's um, often an adeptness at tuning into those things. So I think I, th- I, I think privilege probably makes a difference on how much you feel like you need to operate from some of that. But then psychology shows us we get into a lot of individual differences. There are various people who are just motivated, um, probably out of healthy relational development. I mean, there's a lot of 
uh, research showing that capacities for cultural humility, intercultural competence, some people don't like the competence term, but we're really talking about some similar capacities to be open to understanding self and other at layers of, of culture. And those are correlated with healthy relational capacities. I was leading a, part of a team leading uh, diversity training uh, years ago in a school system in the Twin Cities. And we had um, all the system leaders of the school district I and mean, principals, people in charge of food service, all that, in intercultural competence training. And, and they were in groups. And, and I'll never forget this one principal came up to me and she said, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm making progress at this intercultural competence stuff, but my marriage is going better. <laughs> yeah, it's the same stuff in yeah. a sense. It's like, can you take the perspective of others? Can you contain your judgmental reactions? Can you be curious and open and self-aware? Really at the heart of it, what do you do with the anxiety of human difference? And that's where, you know, we can't make generalizations about civilians or therapists because there's just individual differences. Some people are really motivated to work at that sort of stuff out of, I think, generally healthy relational capacities, or, or maybe their capacities are not that strong, but they're trying to work at it. And then there's other people that just are not motivated that way. And their, their own relational, emotional struggles can get in the way in this area, just as in other areas as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> it's really helpful. I love the, I love the marriage example because there are cultural differences within a lot of marriages. Obviously we might think of like yeah. interracial marriage or something, but that's not the only way you have, as we talked about, culture goes well beyond ethnicity, national origin, language and stuff into yeah. all kinds of ways of, of moving throughout the world. So I, I yeah. love kind of framing it and anchoring it there in that relationality you know, you talked about this openness to understanding yourself and others at the layer of culture, essentially. Mm -hmm. So here's where I think I can connect it to, I'm going to use evangelicalism, but you could, you could fill in any number of especially conservative leaning religious cultures here. There is a sense in which, even though most evangelical pastors happen to also be white men, maybe not, I don't know what the ethnic breakdown is, because I know there are evangelical denominations yeah. in other non-white cultures, but like, right. it's not just the fact that they're white men. It's, there's something about their way of understanding where they fit in relation to the Bible, in relation to church history. So there is this sense that the way that our church community, the way that our tradition sort of where it sits with, re with regard to the truth of the Bible, the history of the church I've described and others have described evangelicalism as ahistorical. It's basically uh, a view that doesn't think it's in history. It's kind of outside of history. Which is Gnostic, kind of Gnostic actually, right? Right. It is kind of Gnostic. It's just kind of like we have this like direct line to this disembodied truth yeah. uh, using our reason, keeping our emotions in the back of the caboose, you know, whatever, as the four spiritual laws lays out, yeah. basically the fifth spiritual law. And uh, that does not incentivize one to want to really understand where someone else is coming from at the layer of culture insofar as culture is seen to be affecting 
receptivity to that truth, right. to this kind of unimpeachable tradition that right. us and the Bible and the early church, and maybe we'll throw in Luther or Calvin, depending on where we're at as like an important figure. So that just would seem to be kind of like an initial defeater mm-hmm. a- against having cultural humility. And again, it's not the only religious subculture that would do that, but it's the one I know the best that does that. I'm mm-hmm. curious what you think about that. It can become intoxicating to try to live outside of human history and have an idealized notion of one's spiritual tradition. But from a Christian perspective, that does bump into some important theological truths and realities that aren't consistent with that, like uh, an incarnational religion that does value human history and embodiment. The realities of human finitude that bump up against sort of the grandiosity or narcissism that I've got this sort of direct unmediated access to divine truth without any kind of human process at all. And risks towards a kind of narcissistic grandiosity about oneself and one's community do really run counter to the humility that I think is part of of, of Christian spirituality, but also is necessary for relating well among differences. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting to look at the early church. I think it's it's fair to argue that both Judaism and, and early Christianity made humility a virtue in ways that were pretty different than Greco-Roman views of humility at that time. I mean, Aristotle didn't think humility was a virtue. He He used the term to apply to a certain class of people. Jewish spirituality and and early Christian spirituality really transformed the meaning of humility to be a a key virtue that included uh, a sense of solidarity with those who are oppressed. So um, it seems to me that theologically, humility was an important characteristic of Christian spirituality from, from early going and was a virtue that probably um, seemed to help deal with the diversity of early Christian communities. It could still be a key virtue of Christian uh, spiritual formation. And and it is one in our studies. We published five studies with evangelical leaders on intercultural competence. And these kinds of capacities we're talking about for, for intercultural competence are associated with humility. They're associated with spiritual well-being. They're associated with other virtues among evangelical Christians. So um, these are not capacities that are just leftist or um, for for people that are religious pluralists. No, even among conservative Christian people, these these capacities seem to relate to the fruit of the Spirit and to um, being a healthy Christian person. I'm not sure that's widely recognized. What happens if you feel no choice but to conclude that your culturally diverse neighbor, maybe your friend, when they engage in their non-Christian faith, that they must be communing with Satan or demons or that it's somehow this kind of, you know, like, well, it's not God. So who is it? Uh, Like that kind of, that kind of process of elimination of, what might otherwise be considered to be like a genuine spiritual um, attempt and process, Mm. you know, faith by another person. It it seems to me that certain types of exclusivity kind of butt up against that cultural humility and those potential benefits almost necessarily. 
based on sort of their their theological and maybe even psychological consequences? There's really a very strong human tendency, I would say, uh, probably part of human sin, to oversimplify my neighbor. So, mm-hmm. so really, I don't think it's necessary to um, for any of us to agree with our neighbor's spirituality or think it's preferable to all of the alternatives or to endorse it. When we talk about cultural humility and cultural competence, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we um, embrace everything. Uh, the question, though, is: Do I have a a judgmental tendency to oversimplify? my neighbor without trying to understand them from their own perspective. It's really interesting how evangelism or mission often breaks down from Christian leaders' incapacities to actually understand the other person's worldview and perspective and practices. So there's actually a way in which wanting to try to have some kind of dialogue or even uh, influence really rests on an ability to build rapport, to try to understand, to embed what I share on um, within the perspective of the other person. We see Paul at Mars Hill in Acts 17 doing that yeah. masterfully, right? But it required not just sort of demonizing the other in a hostile, judgmental way. Right? It seems to me like, and maybe I'm just kind of bringing this cultural moment into it, Uh, more so than would always apply, but at least at this moment, you know, language around what, what is commonly called like a fortress mentality of faith, right? We, we actually can't afford evangelism right now. Like we're not doing outreach because we have battened down the hatches and we have like closed the drawbridge and we are protecting God's truth from the godless hordes or whatever. It's almost more like a crusades moment but it but in cultural terms yeah it seems like that would preclude the kind of cultural humility and even like interest or openness to it if you think that by default that's all them that's the right. world it's going to destroy this thing that right. is so precariously being held together right now yeah i think that if we if we tried to, to practice cultural humility to understand why people would do that it is often a sense of fear and deprivation and feeling under siege that leads to that, you know, fortress approach you described and not feeling the emotional or spiritual resources to be curious, to uh, care about others outside of my particular tribe. We can debate theologically what we should be doing, of course, but if we try to understand why would people do that, they often feel, I think, really racked with fear and um, self-protection. And so it's, yeah, a kind of a, it's a dangerous way to go for a lot of reasons, too. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily help a community thrive. And usually the least powerful members of that fortress will um, pay a heavy price for that. Mm. I like your kind of turning the lens on like the internal experience of someone who's who's acting that way because I think my tendency is to want to vilify them but then it is it is kind of a <laughs> it's, it's literally like a basic tenet of my Christian faith to love my neighbor as myself right mm-hmm. or to to be open to the what was it to, to not oversimplify my neighbor as I do not oversimplify myself yeah, uh, to right. use that language Let's say that like, you know, someone's got a mom or an aunt or an uncle or or a person they know 
could be their peer and their friend. And they're like, you know, I know this person and a part of them really wants to understand other elements in society or I don't know, my gay brother or my whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. But then they also can tell that they're really being motivated by fear. And let's say you think that fear is kind of stifling that potential openness interest. How would you describe that to someone's like, what does that kind of fear feel like? Like, say you're talking to a, a Vermont universe, <laughs> Unitarian Universalist from Vermont, who's just like never been afraid of outsiders and was raised sort of maximally open to the world, global citizen type. How mm -hmm. would you describe that fear? Like what, talk us through that. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's actually probably trauma affects someone who's, who's in a traumatic state perpetually of oh. feeling at the, at the biological level, just on high alert all the time and at risk of something terrible and dangerous happening. And with that can also come a fair amount of self-protective anger. And yet for folks who are in that state, they're often not thinking self-aware. Oh, I bet I'm giving off an angry, hostile vibe to people, or I bet I'm not giving off this uh, receptivity. They're just in a high state of vigilance and alert. Uh, that's one version of it. There could be other versions that clinicians could call more dissociative of sort of just not tuned in really to their feelings or to other people, or it could look kind of narcissistic, but it's really kind of more just their in a semi-altered state of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the, the key factors there relationally is not necessarily tuned in to the vibe that's giving off. And then we can get into the circular process of um, they are communicating in some ways with people around them, but not really aware of the messages they're sending and then how the feedback sort of reinforces their sense of separatism or threat or vigilance, right? And I think also for some, there, folks can be holding, I use the term ideals, people can be holding on to this kind of source of hope that if everyone would only come back and conform to the version of the world that I've been instructed in, then, I, then things will be okay. But anything short of that, people living um, in different kinds of relationships or a different religious tradition or just living differently than my ideal, I can't feel any hope if that's the case. So it's a kind of fragile hope that's, that someone might be clinging to that comes with a kind of rigidity and sort of demand of conformity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm leaving a lot of space each time in case Sari wants to jump in more space than well i, I don't know what do. the question is i just like i've been on this journey in the last 20 minutes i feel like i'm doing a little navel gazing like ever since you started talking about like uh like the white men in positions of power there's not as much like incentive for cultural competence mm -hmm. and then so i went and i did this whole like thinking about my whole life and the way that i was so attuned to the people in power in yeah. order to be perceived as good and helpful to them. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a lot in the church, church leaders, and it was all white male pastors and, and elders in the presbytery. And also 
uh, you know, I had this whole first career in the entertainment industry and the people in power were also mostly white men in the, you know, the CEOs and the presidents and the managers and stuff. And so how that changed, how that affected me is spent kind of being in overdrive all those years of being in tune with that kind of person, a person who was not in tune to my experience at all. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The sort of like instinct to do that, to calibrate to that kind of person and their whatever their cultural tendencies are, you know, mm-hmm. it also, you know, means I had blind spots because I don't have to do a lot of work to understand the experience of other people like my black friends. Yeah. Like and it's like, yeah. you know, at one point having realization, oh, they're really they're really. Their experience of living in America is not a little different than me. It's a lot different. And it's a failure right. of imagination on my part to 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 think that, oh, it's just a little, you know, a little different. I've just been uh, doing some soul searching and thinking about things in those terms of cultural competence and how it's like affected my development as a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the ways that I talk about therapy with my clients, and I, I do primarily cognitive therapy, is I talk about The simplest way to describe what we're doing is we are taking your thoughts and we are holding them up against our best picture of reality. And inherent in that is an assumption, number one, that we ought, first of all, that reality will be medicine. And uh, in cognitive therapy, reality is, is much more often than not basically helpful because we create something worse than reality inside our own minds especially when we are anxious, depressed, you know, dealing with intrusive thoughts, stuff like that, traumatized, Mm -hmm. right? So in those cases, in the therapeutic setting, reality is often medicinal. But then there's this other assumption that I have just kind of been kicking around, and I promise I'm going to connect this to what you said, Sari, which (laughs) is that, like, I, I think I'm fundamentally committed to living in reality as the best version of it that I, I think I can understand. That like there is like a inherent goodness in having my life line up with the real world and not living in a fantasy world. Mm. And if that's true, one interesting way to think about this is like non people who are non dominant, not non members of the dominant culture in whatever situation they're in, they have to learn cultural competency now, yeah. maybe not cultural humility, and it might be interesting, maybe, Steve, to ask you about the differences there, but they do learn cultural competency like you learned, Sari. You learned how to deal with white, powerful men yeah. and the kinds of things that it takes for you to live in that world. If, I am, if I'm raised in South Central LA and I go to Harvard, I must learn a certain amount of cultural competency of like, what do people do at Harvard? so that I can have a good experience and and get through Harvard. The Ivy league family kids who go to Harvard do not have to learn that they have. It's been in, it's been in their life from the baby bottle on. They have been being taught how to live and act and move in these spaces to use that language of yours from earlier, Steve. And so as a white male therapist, for instance, if I'm committed to living in reality, then part of that reality is, I'm going to have many clients who do not share my basic cultural background Yeah, because that's not the world we live in. 
if it was 1955 or something, mm-hmm. I might have a lot more clients who either did or pretended to, but it's mm-hmm. not 1955, it's 2024. And I want to meet these people where they're at. And so right. that's that's just reality. I just, I don't know, I, I find that to be a helpful way for, for me to kind of motivate a desire to do this well. I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to respond to that, Steve, or talk about the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility, which seem related but distinct. Yeah, well, let me deal with the first thing. Just I, I resonate with what you're describing, and I guess I, I put it in the terms you're you're using kind of a cognitive therapy lens, and you know I, I like um, highly relational psychodynamic approaches, and and so I would translate the same basic point you're making into. I think we're talking about healthy relational development. So for people to have good relationships, again, as I said, I'm often working with couples. If I'm not working with couples, I'm probably working with families. People need these capacities to take the perspective of others, to be curious, to want to understand someone else's perspective, even if they don't agree with it or even if it feels contentious. And the flip side of that is relationships break down so often when um, when people haven't had an ability to develop these capacities. So you can find couples and families that are really on the brink, sometimes just sometimes over differences that are um, seem to an outsider painfully trivial, but it's the it's the anxiety about differences and subjectivity and the the, the difficulty once you have strong feelings involved in actually um, relating across those differences. And so I feel like we're 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 talking about capacities that are really good for human beings, good for communities whether it's cultural differences, racial differences, or or any other kinds of differences. These are parts of what I would call spiritual maturity and uh, relational maturity to be able to navigate teams. Even, you know, actually, if you come back to conservative religious communities, sometimes they actually implode over these same things. It's not even just that they can't relate across diversity. It's that, you know, leadership teams break down and have conflict they can't surmount and you know some of that in life is is inevitable but but many times these same capacities would be good within a church or within a leadership team as much as bridging outwardly one thing to say about cultural humility too cultural competence cultural humility i I mean i think of competence as developing some capacities to relate effectively across differences that's a lifelong journey we'll we'll never fully arrive at that it's beneficial to learn some things about other cultures, but I'll never, you know, um, know tons of things about every culture. It's kind of honing the ability to figure out how to learn that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the, the cultural humility idea is overlapping, I think, but speaks to um, how I orient to my limitations in, in particular. So I do think folks from non-dominant groups, sometimes cultural humility has been kind of a burden because the systems around them are are not really supporting their perspectives. Kind of like you said, um, sorry about as a woman. Uh, Sarah Moon, who's a colleague of mine, um, led an article we wrote about cultural humility for persons of color in um, organizations that are not culturally humble. It's really tough. If you take a therapist of color and you say, hey, you really need to be culturally humble. But then you look at the clinic they're practicing in and it's mostly white people who are not particularly culturally humble. You know, that's not 
uh, that's just not fair. It's not a good setup, right? So I think that these virtues like cultural humility, we need to think of at the community organizational level as well as the individual level. That's what virtue traditions have always said. We need communities that practice these things. And that's especially true for women, for persons of color. And so humility can get draining to practice, right? <laughs> Sorry, yes, over time. I was going to say, it can be, it sounds exhausting sometimes. Yeah, and, yeah. and the alternative strength that comes so easy for most of us white men to assert one's perspective or <laughs> to say, hey, there's, I've been listening to you for a long time. I want to share a bit of information with you about my perspective, right? That is tough to do in some systems that don't have a humble ethos overall. If you really enjoy and really value what you hear on this show, you can support it financially by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. It's seven bucks a month and it includes access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that main feed listeners don't get to hear, as well as advertising free uh, main feed episodes on your special patron feed, as well as membership in the Facebook group which is an incredible online community of like-minded people asking very similar questions, helping each other with resources, you know, just, just kind of sharing stories, feeling less alone. Uh, I'm, I'm mixing it up in that group all the time, as is Josh Gilbert uh, and often Kristen and Sari who work on marketing stuff. So it's, it's a cool community. Um, it helps me make this show, uh, helps me uh, pay for my time as well as the costs of paying for Josh. Kristen and Sari and and other you know associated costs with the show. So I'd really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we can uh, we can make this make this world a better place together. Is that too is that reaching too far? I don't know. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Let's get back to the episode. I love this phrase that you've used a couple times now, Steve, the anxiety of human difference. Uh, you know, I, at the very top, I talked about, you know, there is cultural diversity. That's just a fact on the ground mm. of our world. The more sort of globally connected we are and the more sort of immigration a country has from other countries, sort of the more tangible that is. But as you're talking about, you can have people within a fundamentalist church board who can't see eye to eye on something and split over it. So it doesn't you know, you, you have it. It's, it's a given of sort of human community that there is difference. It's a, are you talking about even, you know, just a couple or a family, the yeah. anxiety about the difference between the individuals in that family system. I also like how you said that virtue, uh, virtue, what did you call it? Virtue communities, virtue schools of thought. Well, I'm saying that virtues are a communal enterprise. They, they yes. need to be held as a community within organizations and not just the individual level. Right. So virtues like humility exist at the individual level and also at the community level. And yeah. so I'm wondering, I'd like to actually talk about that anxiety of human difference at the individual and, and community oh. level. So mm -hmm. you could have an individual person who's feeling that anxiety about mm -hmm. that difference. You could have a church or an organization or a, a business uh, mm -hmm. With a board of, you know, whatever, the, the board and whoever it is, the executive suite could also respond to this anxiety of human difference. Like, 
how do you see it overlapping or being different between like, here's how an individual might experience or reflect that anxiety back to other people versus how might an institution or an organization reflect and show that they are struggling with that anxiety of the fundamental difference within humanity? Yeah, well, I have a confession, Dan, that anxiety is one of my favorite topics. It's, I think, a core <laughs> core topic. I think it's really important theologically and psychologically. And as, a, as an existentialist, I think anxieties are just a given part of the human condition. So, um, okay, somebody can just kill me now. <laughs> just, just fell in love with Stephen. Kill, <laughs> just kill me now. That's a high point. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. Glad that we don't differ on that. Well, I no, sir. Drive us crazy, but um, it's such a basic, important thing to try to build some awareness and fluency of individuals and in communities. So with my clients in therapy, they get introduced to a kind of normalization of anxiety yeah. in teaching and training. Um, I think it's just so important because anxiety can really be painful and oppressive, but it's also a, a part of human life. And, and if you don't have any anxiety, you're, you're, um, you're probably dead or you're a sociopath or something else that's not a great outcome. So uh, but but as you said, individuals differ in how they deal with it, but system, families, churches, other systems, uh, I think differ in the overall level of anxiety. And sometimes systems are dealing with a lot of anxiety because of situational factors or trends. I mean, there's many churches that would probably be characterized by a lot of anxiety these days because they're not sure if they're going to survive or not. And sure. in some of those contexts where there isn't discussion of those issues or awareness we feel under threat, you can have some just nasty conflicts because people are um, are turning away from the underlying anxiety or, or sometimes grief that is probably operative and, and figuring out who to try to scapegoat for uh, the fact that life doesn't feel good, right? So I think leadership in, in systems, families, congregations is really important. I mean, to have leaders who can metabolize their own anxiety and can can figure out how to get themselves grounded. Hugely important. Rabbi Edwin Friedman wrote a book years ago, Generation to Generation. I try to get all our, our divinity students to read because he was talking about the multiple sources of anxiety for, for clergy, for leaders of religious systems, but it's like in families as well. And, and so if you have these various converging forces of anxiety, no real awareness, very limited repertoire of tools among leaders or other members of the system, you really start to get twisted into an awful lot of different knots and and patterns and um, pretty maladaptive strategies for managing that. And human diversity is just, it's one channel that is, um, as you said at the outset, Dan, inevitable to deal with in our world, systems that, uh, or leaders, individuals who, who can't really deal with it are going to experience a lot of anxiety and <laughs> it's probably not going to bode well for how things play out at some point. You can have systems, like we said, that hunker down and try to have homogeneity and sameness and all of that. But man, human human differences are, are really ubiquitous. So eventually... You know, you have the all-male board of elders at the church that agree with the same statement of faith, 
who can implode over some other difference that they just can't manage, even though they thought they got rid of all differences, right? They, they got everybody on the same page, but no, some kind of human difference emerges. Like anxiety sort of arises, like, I don't know if you speak in evolutionary terms or whatever, to kind of to protect you from something sure. that's potentially a threat, right? right? And so, so the fact that like human difference is triggering that is sort of like a, maybe a, I don't know, a vestige of like a more tribalistic sure. kind yeah. of time. Yeah. I wonder if that's sort of accurate and how you see it. And then what are the, what are some of the more practical tools that you give people to teach them to sit with it and maybe charge through it rather lead to avoidance and, and flight? Yeah. A lot of these diversity factors that we're talking about, if you think about the way Human communities have often used hierarchy to manage diversity. One group is is better, more powerful. They're the decision makers. That's true across race, gender. You've got religious communities that are often uh, historically trying to huddle together around similarity. And I'm, I'm not completely against folks enjoying some similarity in certain realms. But when you think about the way hierarchy and closing off difference has been a way to deal with this anxiety. And then you realize that there's many aspects of our contemporary world, at least in the United States, in many parts of the world, where we can't continue to do that in the same ways. And so the the, the psychological relational capacities to be aware of anxiety, for me as an adult person, to develop some capacity to um, regulate my own anxiety as opposed to expecting everyone else to do it for me, to have the awareness and some practices to do that. That's that's a good bit of work for many folks, you know, you know adult folks in, in the U.S. I'd say we, we sort of need curricula on this in various venues to say anxiety is normal. You don't have to love it, but it's going to be part of your life. If you want to have healthy relational dynamics, looks like in the day, if you want to have sort of healthy growing spirituality, you're going to need some capacities to, to self-regulate. And spirituality could be a part of that. But sometimes spirituality has been, um, for some people, a bit like a drug more than it's been about trying to regulate anxiety. So a need for a shift in spiritual formation away from just using my my faith to avoid anxiety and more to um, accept that it's it's part of life and I need some mature capacities to get grounded even in the midst of anxiety. And it's sort of like other aspects of growth or change. I mean, if I try to organize myself so I don't face any of that anxiety, I'm actually not going to make much progress with it. You know, I mean, I find that I'm not really in very good physical shape if I just avoid the gym for a long period of time. <laughs> Right. There's a way in which we kind of have to lean in to these um, to these challenges to actually grow as people. I'm thinking now of a listener who has a loved one that they go, okay, I think, you know, given the language you guys are using, this loved one is suffering from this anxiety, fundamental anxiety of human difference. Uh, They are not that interested in cultural humility, or they can't find their way there, maybe because of that anxiety, or in part because of that anxiety. And I've got sort of two questions for, you know, applying this to a listener who's aware of that situation. 
the first one is how might focusing on the reality of their anxiety, the other person's anxiety, the loved one, how might that increase our compassion and understanding for mm. them and actually kind of relieve some of the pressure on us mm-hmm. and kind of put us in a more healthy position to potentially help. I'm going to talk about the limits of our agency in the second question. It's not okay. up to us. Like, like you're talking about, you know, the thing you just described that people ultimately need is like a full battery of therapy. <laughs> if this is the kind of place they find themselves and that's not going to be practical for everybody in all times yeah. and places, of course. But so, but how could I, with this loved one purported hypothetical loved one, not that I have any of these loved ones in my life, <laughs> you know, like how can, how can I increase in compassion and understanding using this kind of anxiety lens to understand what they're going through? Yeah, good question. And, and actually I don't, I don't mean to imply the only place to do this kind of work is in therapy. I don't, I don't believe that. I think we actually probably need multiple. Right. You mentioned curricula in churches and other, right. I, I, I yeah. Yeah. It'd be wonderful if, if churches and various community spaces we're inviting folks into this kind of growth, but yeah. I think I think it is part of cultural competence or cultural humility to, in a situation like you described, Dan, to to want to try to understand the other person's anxiety before I try to change it. You know, mm, um, yeah. most of us would prefer to be understood before someone tries to move us somewhere else, and so. Yeah. I think even if that only happens within me, maybe I don't get a chance to really unpack this with the other person. But if I at least start with wanting to try to understand what the fears or anxieties are that maybe are, are behind their stance about things, uh, I think that's that's really good perspective taking. Again, curiosity. I don't have to agree that it's it's a great stance they're in or a desirable one or yeah. a sign of healthy anything, but can I try to at least be curious, um, maybe out of a sense of compassion, I think you invoked compassion, that yeah, uh, there may be ways that they're actually suffering in it, and they may be causing suffering to others, but that um, they're tied up in, in a knot in some ways. There's some spiritual traditions that use that image of a knot that I find helpful. They're, they're not waking up in the morning deciding, hey, I feel like... Uh, I'd like to be a judgmental asshole towards the whole world, you know, but they're they're just, (laughs) there's knots in their sense of being and the way they're organized in the world that um, are getting the best of them, right? I just want to say that this is a way, maybe even the way in which continuing with some sort of Christian faith uh, is really resonant with the process of therapy. Yeah. You know, that kind of like, how can I find my way to understanding where this person is coming from on their own terms and withholding judgment? Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's something we have to do with clients. You know, any of us who ascribe to the uh, Carl Rogers idea, the Rogerian idea of unconditional positive regard, like we have to find things to like about every client so that we can give them that, you know, support and space. Right. So that feels very resonant. I just, I have to, I have to note that. say be consistent with, with giving some feedback if it's a relative who's making racist statements at a, you know, a family mm-hmm. dinner or something like this, that sort of perspective taking isn't inconsistent with also setting a limit about behavior yeah. that I find objectionable. So the second question then is given that 
it may be complex for people to sort of come out of this anxiety to, to be less kind of choked by fear and concern, given that we expect that to be a long process and that I, as one loved one in this person's life who knows 50 people well and has their own life, just like I have my own life, there are real limits to my own agency. And, And we don't, I never want to encourage my clients and I talk a lot with them about like not spinning their wheels and mm-hmm. not sort of wasting all their energy on in areas where they don't have any control. Right. Right. But is there, are there things that we can do again, me with my hypothetical loved one who's racked by anxiety around human difference. Is, is there anything I can do to begin to provide them the type of place that feels safe enough for them to either wherever, whatever you think the steps are, acknowledge that anxiety, express it, uh, ask dumb questions, um, you know, whatever those steps might be. Like if I want to be a part of the solution without trying to do more than is within my capacity to do, mm-hmm. what would you recommend? Like, what are some things to think about? Uh, what are some question prompts you might give a client who's, who's kind of, wanting to play this role with a loved one. Your point, Dan, about the limits of agency is actually potentially a valuable paradoxical part of the mix, right? That in some ways, not being so focused on changing the other person can sometimes create a bit of space in in which the other person can grapple with themselves a little bit more. So I think we're talking about something fairly important that when someone who already maybe has a lot of anxiety and feels a bit threatened or defensive now feels like someone that they know is sort of working on them. (laughs) It it sometimes mobilizes the defenses even more. Yeah. Speaking of feeling defensive, let me just say right now, I am planning a whole episode around acceptance in light of things like this, you know, Trump loving loved ones and stuff like that. So let me just get my own defensiveness cleared out of my system here, Great. Steve. No, please Beautiful. continue. You're doing a good yeah. job, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> the, the technical term that in our therapy field would be differentiation. That as I'm going to try to be my own person, I'm not really going to try to change you um, if, if you're not mm-hmm. wanting to to be changed. And uh, if it if it seems safe enough to do so, I could maybe talk about how I'm thinking about things, what I'm involved in, what I'm doing. In other words, I'm not going to also deny some aspects of who I am or what I care about just because you're not into it, right? I'm not trying to tell you what to do, right? So I think that kind of a relational stance, curious about you, open to understanding, and not trying to change you, but disclosing what I'm into, what my perspective is, and, and seeing where that goes. I mean, there is there is a basic point that that I think you were alluding to, that if, if people, uh, especially from dominant groups, if they don't want to change in these ways, they're not probably going to. I mean... There's not a lot of pressure on them to change. No, no. It's, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but... Uh, we also get so siloed and, and avoidant at times that uh, some people don't get to interact with someone who thinks differently about these issues. I can think of someone I knew um, a number of years back who, who made some of the most 
egregious racist comments I've ever heard from an adult. And I was actually quite horrified and felt incredibly judgmental, I think understandably so, and all that. And um, over a number of years, they started to get exposed to some broader social situations and some broader set of relationships. And I was actually shocked at how much they changed over the course of about five or six years. I would have never expected that, right? And um, I didn't personally have anything to do with it, but I think that I, I can feel what the challenge is like when you're around someone who has really strong opinions. And again, and for certain people in certain situations, it wouldn't be safe to press on that too much. But in other situations, it might just be a matter of being honest about one's own perspective when it's not going to elicit some response of violence, but it's also not going to be uh, endorsed. And um, to, to be willing to voice that. And, and sometimes I think we might underestimate that that sort of the efficacy of that sort of relational stance over time. It might not feel like um, one is getting anywhere. Sometimes probably not, but I think that's the kind of relational positioning that, that um, I would recommend. I wondered if you had any data, Steve, on like, like media, if, if it can move the needle at all. And I feel like I kind of know part of the answer is that like, a lot of people who are more, I feel like, more humble or culturally humble are more already more likely to engage in like <laughs> a broader kind of variety of media, or maybe they have their <laughs> higher on openness, you know. So yeah. where's the chicken and where's the egg? But I don't. I wonder if you had any data about like that relationship. I I don't. I think that I think your hypothesis is is a pretty good one, though. I mean, where what are we getting exposed to? And in part, media is such a powerful, important influence. But you could also just look at, are people getting to interact with folks who are culturally or racially different than them, or different sexual orientation, or different religion? And, and if and if the, the, the diet of media, as well as just with human beings, is really not diverse at all, it's going to be very hard to make progress in, in any of these areas. And it's not like simply simply exposing people to more diversity automatically results in, in cultural humility either. People can have difficult experiences that just reinforce their prejudice as well. So, so I really think it's exposure to diversity that gets somehow well-processed or metabolized by people that yeah. can, can help broaden perspectives or come to some new insights um that's that's really the key and that's again kind of an elusive sort of relational process of diversity growth <laughs> i mean where, where do you sign up for that you get exposed to it in certain kinds of professional training some workplaces might offer it but it's usually not got that relational component of process people go listen to a speaker for mandatory diversity training right times a year right yeah. so i'm actually not sure that it's that complicated what people need to grow in this area i just think it's not implemented very often and it's pretty easy to avoid it especially if you're a person of um, racial social gender privilege you you can really avoid it it's pretty easy i i mean i think the incentive structures are relevant here right yeah. like not only can you avoid it to sort of like i'm hearing that sentence as the agent 
in the sentence is the person who's avoiding it. But the incentive structures of many of the organizations, businesses, whatever, who rely on that consumer and that's Mm -hmm. their news station. It might be their church. Um, It's probably most of their friends and the various incentives Mm -hmm. that they have in their own lives. Like where is the incentive to really push this stuff? That's why, you know, I, I think it's Richard Rohr who said somewhere along at something I listened to many years ago that people often don't change until they have some great joy or great suffering that then sort of jars them to have to change something significant about Mm -hmm. themselves or the way they see the world, because we're just not incentivized to do that. It's not really how we're built. Mm -hmm. And that's another part of the compassion, right. Of of understanding that that is a part of our, our human heritage that that we get, you know, just from being born homo sapien. So I guess that's one last little piece of it. On the flip side, what's really fun to see is when people move from defense to offense and are really curious about differences, different contexts, and start to find that not only can they survive that, but that it actually is really enriching. And so, so on the positive side of how do people make progress in cultural humility, cultural competence, and the relational dynamics that go with that, at some point, there's a shift that I think that is um, approach rather than avoidance. It's that this stuff is really interesting. And I can have my own preferences or things that I like, but it's really pretty interesting to, to tune into different contexts and to understand different ways of being in the world. Listen, you know, and the, the various levels of that, right? That people who are very different than us can expose us to different aspects of human experience. And so I I really enjoy it when I see folks who kind of cross over and they're now generally not every day or every moment, but they're kind of disposed towards um, that sort of growth mindset rather than the avoidance self-protection mindset. And there's a lot of gains that comes with that in um, in various ways. I mean, I think organizations can become more creative and better at problem solving and all kinds of stuff, right? So I actually really appreciate you including that line about still having your own preferences. I think that on the left, this is something that I have personally been sort of thinking through at least since George Floyd's murder, if not before then. On the left, I, I think there can there can be a sense of like, well, if racial justice is not your your number one topic of interest, then you are kind of like not doing and you're not sufficiently anti-racist. And mm-hmm. now you are on the wrong side. Yeah. And there is such a there's such a continuum like it is perfectly great if somebody thinks like, no, that's my issue. Like. That is like my favorite issue. It's the one I'm most interested in. It's or it's the one I have the most fire about. It's mm-hmm. the one where I feel called to be a part of it in some meaningful way. Like, hell yeah. yeah. Fantastic. But it's also okay to like really like movies, you know? Like you don't have to only care about that. The 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 biggest difference 
is between the person who is turned off to it and the person who's open to it. And then after that, I think the difference is they still matter. Someone for whom that's a really important issue, they're probably going to be engaged in more activity that brings about Mm -hmm. racial justice. They're probably going to, they're certainly going to talk about it more. It's going to be kind of more on the forefront of their mind. But of course, racial justice is not the only issue. There is climate justice. There is, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on. There is, you know, child abuse and domestic violence and all, all these ills, right. That we have. And I just, I just like your kind of nod to like that, you know, you find your own way with something like cultural humility or cultural competence and different people might have different levels of interest, but where we're hoping people to get at a minimum is openness to it and some curiosity. And I also resonated with you saying that that curiosity pays off. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's certainly been my experience is that it is genuinely interesting when you find the questions that a different community of people has primarily been asking Mm -hmm. and you understand a little bit of why they're asking it. It -hmm. it does kind of explode your mind a little bit. You're like, oh, shit, that's cool. Like like that might be very sad. There might be a lot Mm -hmm. of suffering, but it is like it's also invigorating to find a topic that's interesting. And that you feel like is teaching you something genuinely new about the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think spiritually enlivening. I mean, yeah. That I, I reached a certain point where it was kind of hard to really enjoy white theologians because they so often didn't have as much depth of understanding of these um, kinds of issues. And it just actually was for my own spiritual growth was was more helpful to read from communities of color and, and folks who had been dealing with suffering. But on, on the other side, what I also... To your other point, Dan, I during my own super hyper vigilant early awakening to racism phase, which you know those of us who are white can be so annoying uh, to people of color in those in that phase. In that period, I, I can yeah. remember one of my friends of color like saying to me one day, "You know, Steve, we, it'd be great to just talk about the NBA a little bit and some <laughs> other topics. We don't have yeah. to every because t- because actually what he was helping me understand is he didn't feel like talking about racism every time we got together. He didn't." Yeah necessarily want to take on the mantle of educating me about it. So, you know, there's there's ways that um, we, we can take on sort of rescuer grandiosity um, about these issues. And it's probably best to have these sorts of commitments to justice integrated into our lives in a sustained way over time, rather than posturing with, this is all I want to talk about. And, um, I don't know how yeah. to enjoy life or other relationships at all. I'm just going to try to convince you that this is um, all that matters to me. Right. That's not humble. That's, that's more grandiose. Yeah. I just want to say what you said, Dan, in another way and sort of echo something that Stephen just said was like, when I, the first class I took was like the history of in seminary was the history of Christianity in the United States and learning sort of like the heritage of the the all the denominations and how they branched off and split and what the differences were and why. Yeah. And it, it blew my mind at how many different kinds of Christians there were and how much yeah. variety there was in the tent mm. that we called Christianity. And it was exciting to learn about that diversity. And it also helped me a ton to kind of ne- find the strand that I was raised in and then see what was going on there. And then like, mm. uh, just find out that there were other options 
of, yeah. <laughs> to believe different things, you know, that we're still within, you know, the Christian faith. That was that was really powerful. And, you know, whenever you do a deep dive in a topic and you learn about the varieties of options, the varieties of experiences and stuff, it helps you also understand yourself better in a yeah, way. Not that absolutely. that's the goal, but it always does, you know. Absolutely. Um, and that's always that's always fun and and helps you thrive a little bit more, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good part of cultural humility work. It's yeah, because when you stand the varieties of experience, say in sexuality or gender expression or or something, just use those as examples, you're not going to discover that, oh my gosh, this person's experience is 100% alien to me. I mean, yeah. often it's the case you find points of connection. You're like, oh, you're yeah. articulating something I've experienced in a different way, you know? Mm -hmm. So that can be, that can be fun too. Yeah, well said. Stephen Sandage, thank you so much. Again, uh, just massively enjoyed this conversation with you. And I'm, I'm sure I speak for Sari. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you two are always fun to talk to. This is good stuff. Well, I appreciate you being willing to come back. And uh, I'll ask you again in not too long, because <laughs> when I find someone I like talking to, that's what I tend to do. So yeah. I appreciate it so much. All right, take care of you too.